Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near Death Experiences podcast. Thank you very much for listening today. I am excited to get into this one. This near-death experience was sent to me by a longtime listener of the show, uh, Carl. Shout out to Carl. Thank you very much for sending me this. And uh, I really appreciate that because this is an amazing experience. It comes from a man named Henry. And the circumstances around what caused the near-death experience are a little vague. He doesn't share a whole lot about that. He does mention that it was a suicide attempt. But... There are a lot of ideas in this near-death experience. It's, it's very focused around ideas and questions about life and, and our purpose and, and that sort of thing. And particularly, he asked a question about what ghosts are, which um, led me into a long discussion of, of us having multiple souls and all sorts of interesting stuff. And, and I got to uh, read quite a bit from On Dreams and Death, the book that I've been uh, citing most frequently in these episodes, but it was very appropriate for for talking about Henry's near-death experience and some of those ideas in there. As ever, this is coming from the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation website, nderf.org, and I will post a link to it in the description of this podcast episode. And like I always say, highly recommend y'all go check out that website because there's lots of interesting near-death experiences on there and um, it's it's a really great resource. So without any further ado, this is Henry's near-death experience. The fact of the matter is that I died. I remember feeling my heart slow down until it stopped. At that moment, my eyes closed. Not more than what seemed a second later, I could see again. It was as if I had stepped through my eyelids. I sat up and was in awe at how clear everything appeared. I had worn glasses or contacts my entire life, so I was amazed at the sharpness of the room around me and the vividness of the colors. I could perceive an energy surrounding everything. The books, desk, furniture of the room all seemed to have a slight glow that radiated from them. No sooner had I noticed this than I realized I could see 360 degrees around me. I didn't need to turn my head, I just looked and I saw. There behind me lay my body and at that moment I realized I had died. At the moment of realization, I saw a light come from the doorway. As I stared into it, the room seemed to be blown away, and I was in another realm. At first, all I perceived was a vast area that I knew somehow extended into infinity. The area was lighted, but the source of the illumination I couldn't see. The entire universe was of the richest, deepest, dark purple I had ever seen. At that moment, I realized that all of my senses were heightened. I could hear silence. There was no noise, 
but I was hearing something. Perhaps it was the existence of this universe. It was alive. I was breathing, but not. Instead of air, I felt a living force flowing through me. I felt as though I was swimming in the very essences of love. As I moved through this space, I became aware of others around me. There was no one I knew, but I sensed other beings. Soon I saw them as small golden orbs of light, each separate and individual. Yet a thin thread linked them all. They extended out as far as I could see in my mind. I knew that each and every one was connected and joined with what I believed was God. It is important to note here that I never heard voices. Rather, words seemed to enter my mind as immediately as I perceived something. It was like a running narration in a film. I was given answers to my questions before I could even ask. Almost immediately, I knew I was not staying. This universe seemed to know my desires to understand life and the mysteries of why we are on this earth. It was going to tell me. I became aware of other voices, the orbs or other souls around me. I could hear them communicating to each other. There seemed to be cliques of orbs that were together. They spoke to one another about their lives on earth and all they had perceived and felt. They shared not only in words, but in sharing the experience. If one orb couldn't understand, it disappeared and then reappeared. The orb somehow went back to Earth and experienced that life to further understand. I understood that here time did not exist, and these beings could manifest themselves at any time on Earth they desired. These orbs, or rather souls, would leave this realm, detach themselves with this universe, and return to the universe of our Earth. There they would live and die, and then return and share the experience with all the other souls. A soul that could not understand the experience could go and live that life also to experience that life. I learned we have many lives, past, present, and future. These souls, our souls, cannot experience certain things like pain, sorrow, hatred, and anger. Though these are negative things, it was important for them to understand and experience them. Perhaps to understand the motivations of human beings, or, and I believe this in my heart, to eventually evolve into a being like God, all-knowing and understanding. At this time, things appeared to me, answers to other questions. I could see concepts as if they were entities. I could understand for the first time in my life E equals MC squared. I learned that our universe is one of many. It is like a petri dish, designed with its own rules to raise a specific being. In this case, to raise beings like humans. Each universe had its own specific laws of physics. I now realize that the amount of information a soul must learn is vast, more so than we can possibly imagine here. The next concept or rule I learned 
is that God can never be proven by scientific means. To do so would corrupt the environment. It would destroy faith. When we have faith, we seek, we learn. If God were to appear before us like a huge being at the United Nations, the entire world would believe, but also live in fear. To successfully experience the human existence, one must be physically out of touch with God. We have to learn and seek on our own. We need to search out the meaning of our own existence and experience here on earth. Faith is the engine of discovery. Without faith, we are just like ants. I learned why bad things happen to good people. If nothing bad ever happened to us, we would all basically be the same. It is like metal in a forge. You have to heat it and strike it repeatedly to make a useful tool from it. We start this life with a blank piece of paper. With every incident we experience, a part of the blueprint is recorded until a complete plan for an individual is created. This blueprint dictates the end of our lives. To live happily in this realm is to become aware of the blueprint and change it. Lastly, time is only a concept measured here. In the other realm, it doesn't exist. While we may experience pain and sorrow on earth, it is only a second in the grand scheme of things. We have an eternity to live, and in reality, souls never really die. Our life is just a thought providing circumstances for this existence. As the soul progresses, this trauma is forgotten and put in its proper perspective as part of the learning process. One question I always personally had, and that was answered, is, are ghosts real? The answer I was given was, yes. In the human body, there are two forms of spiritual being. One is the soul, which is the spiritual being that has a symbiotic relationship with the physical body. The second is the being created by the biology of the human body. This being is intelligent and is basically the personality of the individual. Its purpose is to provide for the human needs of food, hunger, survival, and procreation. This concept is very similar to Freud's id, ego, and superego, the division of mind and personality. The soul provides us with all the things of the individual that separates us from the animal kingdom. This is the ability to reason, use logic, or feel awe when seeing a sunset. The soul is the creative side of humankind. The second being is more of our animal side and drives us to accomplish or pursue things to satisfy our needs and wants. When we die, the soul separates and proceeds to the other side. Forgive me for simplifying everything. The entity of the body dies, taking with it the strong emotions, baggage, and drives of human beings. This is a natural part of the dying process. However, Sometimes under violent or sudden death, this other being, for lack of a better word, doesn't have a chance to die. Instead, it remains behind as the drive, emotions, and motivations of our spirit. 
This body being, without the guidance of the soul, is basically just a shell. It wanders about with no goals or purpose. It often repeats acts that it has done before because memories are the only, quote, guidance that it has. In time, this being's energy dissipates and nothing is left. That process can take a long time. Hence, we have a, quote, ghost that haunts a house or person. A ghost has the center of its existence when it was with its human body and soul. Here on earth it remains until it eventually vanishes. The ghost can be communicated with and guided, yet has no real will of its own, but only that of habit. As the questions and answers ended, I felt myself fall. With a jerk, I was back in my own body. My eyes opened back to my own world. Only scant minutes passed, but it seemed like an eternity. I learned many other things that as time passed, I forgot. Okay, so that was Henry's near-death experience. So we're going to get into some of the things that we can discuss about it, because there's really a lot there that we can talk about. Not so much in terms of imagery this time around, but more, Henry's dealing more with, with ideas. There's, he, he seems to be a very curious person, and, and through his experience, asked a lot of questions, and I suppose gained a lot of knowledge about things he was curious about. But uh, just to start with, we can talk about the beginning of his experience before he he goes into a different realm. But he he notices his his eyes are closed, and then he says he he moves through his eyelids, so to speak. So that is the the moment of leaving one's body. It feels like he he moves through through his eyelids, and then he can see and. When he can see, his his perception is completely different than what it usually is. He mentions that he has really bad eyesight, and now he can see things in perfect clarity without the use of glasses or contacts. And a couple of interesting details that I wanted to point out, which we can relate back to other near-death experiences that we've talked about so far, is the fact that first he has... 360 degree vision, which is something we hear um, in different near-death experiences. Sometimes people express that they are able to see completely around them, uh, like perfectly and and without having to turn or (laughs) move in any way. It's, It's very hard to imagine, but most of these experiences usually are. Another thing that I found was interesting is, she, is uh, Henry was mentioning that the objects in the room that he was in, in the room itself, seemed to be emitting light or glowing from themselves. That uh, the different objects, the desk, the, uh, what does he say, the uh, furniture, uh, books, desk, everything seemed to have a slight glow that radiated from them. Which is interesting because... It reminded me of one of our previous experiences that we've talked about in which, I don't remember who it was, but the individual 
said that objects shone forth in their own being and I'm paraphrasing, but they they shone forth their own light. Light was not being reflected off of them. They they emitted their own being, which is interesting. And, and this is something that I can only comment on very slightly because I'm not um, very deep into philosophy. But um, it's an interesting notion that uh, the idea of perceiving something without the filter of of our senses to actually see things perhaps in themselves like what they actually are without being removed through uh, our perceptions and our senses of touch and sight and sound to be actually to actually be able to perceive an object without any medium between you i think is a very interesting idea especially considering what that suggests about our consciousness, our awareness, and perhaps what it's like being in a body versus what it's like being out of a body. It certainly seems a lot more unlimited, unrestrained being free of the body. At least that's the the general vibe that I get from reading near-death experiences and people trying to describe it and having difficulty in describing it because we are such limited material creatures most of the time. So um, I always appreciate people trying to describe what what perception is like outside of the body, quote-unquote, you know, what it... the, the vast differences of... of quality that people tend to describe the sights and sounds and colors and everything as being more intense more vivid than ever possible in 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 the body in human form so i thought that was very interesting another thing that stood out to me was in this case for henry the threshold into this other world uh, there was no tunnel per se but the threshold was a doorway, which I think obviously is a, is a perfect image for for what that suggests of, of moving into another realm, another place, perhaps another state of being. But a doorway works perfectly in, in that regard. He he finds himself in a realm which he he describes as being there was a illumination. Uh, he says it's a brilliant kind of dark purple color. There are these orbs, these beings, stretched out to infinity, which is another interesting idea, just that we we can't really wrap our heads around infinity and what infinity could possibly mean. Uh, you know, people use all these wonderful analogies of um, an infinite amount of monkeys typing for an infinite amount of time will will uh, type out the entire works of Shakespeare perfectly with every punctuation mark and every word spelled perfectly just to try to illustrate the 
completely mind-boggling aspect of, of, of what infinity might be like. And so I find it interesting that it is often evoked in near-death experiences and explicitly being, well, identified with divinity or God or heaven or whatever this other state of being is that it has an infinite quality and i suppose that would mean it it's something that is it is endless in its possibilities or inexhaust inexhaustible in its its energy or its its yeah i guess possibilities of what it could be and so that certainly seems to be the case uh with reading near death experiences that it, the forms it takes are are seemingly endless although there are broad patterns so another another thing that stood out to me was that he mentions that he can hear silence which is obviously something paradoxical it's irrational it doesn't make sense it's not logical but as I like to point out, near-death experiences often have this this play of op- opposites, this bringing together of opposites into a, a, a single image or, or sensation. And in this case, that's definitely what's going on here, that this is something impossible. You can't hear silence. Silence is the absence of sound. But in this case... It, it expresses that that transcendence that that ineffability of of the experience that he is actually able to to hear something which has no sound and he goes on to describe what this kind of is that there's this instead of breathing he is it seems to be like he's taking in a life force uh, a living force something which he associates with, uh, quote, the essences of love. So something he associates with love as being this permeating, I don't know, ether, which instead of air breathing in, uh, the atmosphere seems to be love. Or that something uh, we could describe as love. Then he he talks about seeing all these different beings, these different souls, which have the form of an orb, a sphere. And that's something that you do see in many near-death experiences. Some people describe different beings as having a body, a body of light, or a physical form of some kind, but they also get described as orbs round objects and one 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 thing that was fascinating is he mentions that they were all connected by a thin thread running through all of them that they they were in little groups of clicks together but they're all connected by a thin thread and i thought that was a very interesting image to note because we have come across that before in a couple different ways. Uh, for example, I think we've had a near-death experience 
in which someone was connected to their own body by a thread. And we've seen an image of a, a lattice appear before in Jim's near-death experience with the egg object that he encountered was, was a lattice sort of form. And then also when I read the final chapter of Marie-Louise von Franz's On Dreams and Death in uh, Jung's New Hypothesis was the episode, there was a, a section in which one of the individuals was describing his near-death experience or a spiritual experience in terms of a, a network, uh, like a power grid of, of threads or, or, or strings. So I wanted to reread that real quick just to freshen our memories and, and again, find an analogy to this particular image that Henry experienced. The account of Victor Solov, who was considered to have been clinically dead for 23 minutes, is less influenced by subsequent reflections, and in this sense more genuine than that of Jankovic. Quote, I was moving very quickly toward a bright, shining net, which vibrated with a remarkable cold energy at the intersecting points of its radiant strands. The net was like a lattice, which I did not want to break through. For a brief moment, my forward movement seemed to slow down, but then I was in the lattice. As I came in touch with it, the light flickering increased to such an intensity that it consumed and at the same time transformed me. I felt no pain. The feeling was neither agreeable nor disagreeable, but it filled me completely. From then on, everything was different. This can be described only very incompletely. The whole thing was like a transformer, an energy transformer, which transported me into a formlessness beyond time and space. I was not in another place, for spatial dimensions had been abolished, but rather in another state of being. End quote. A similar lattice was also seen by one of Lindley's witnesses. The patient reported that the more he concentrated on the source of light, the more he realized how very strange it was. It was more than light. It was a grid of power. It looked to him like an Indian summer spider web. This lattice or net reminds one of the, quote, curtain of threads through which a woman dreamer saw her uncle disappear. The uncle had died at the time of the dream, although the woman had not yet received any information about his demise. Okay, so that was just a short excerpt of one of the chapters that we've read already, but I thought it was very useful to be able to see this imagery in action in a different experience, in a different setting. And clearly it is a motif that we, we come across. And... I suppose we can only try to to look at perhaps what it represents and what Henry has to say about it. Now, the image itself uh, in Marie-Louise von Franz's cases that she mentions connects it with power and energy, that it is, is something connected with the, the flow and dynamics of energy like a transformer. 
in this case, it it I, in Henry's case, it seems to suggest something more about connection, or in this case of of love. And I will not be so bold as to try and define love, because I think that might be something as indefinable as uh, as anything. So I will just talk about perhaps an aspect of of love, which which might be. I don't know, talked about in terms of connection or relation. Even trying to strip away some of the intense emotions around love and, and what it is as and how meaningful it is and, and how important it is to us, but just as as a principle of connection and relation, I think a thread connecting two souls would be uh, the perfect image for that. And that, that seems to be what Henry relates it to, that it's connection, sharing. And these, he mentions that these orbs get connected in some way through all these threads, like this giant network of, of souls is somehow connected to God. And so these threads, I, you know, just as a very general, generally speaking type of image, as an aspect of love, I think that would be very appropriate to be a metaphor for uh, for connection, relation, and uh, you know the opposite of separateness, being um, disassociated from from things and people and and things being discrete and not connected. I think as as an opposite to that is quite characteristic of our world and and probably something that also has its own place but clearly these other realms seem to emphasize the the principle of of love or or connection or relation and particularly in this in this form and maybe that has something to do with with the flow of energy or or the flow of of power of ideas one thing that henry continues uh, throughout his experience as as the sorry as the experience continues he talks about how there was instant communication which is another very common pattern we see in many near death experiences but that he heard no voices but information appeared instantly directly into his mind and he mentions that it's a little unclear whether multiple beings or, or one being or the experience itself or God, it, it, the subject is a little unclear, but he mentions that that they sensed his desire to learn. And I think that's part of the reason why he, he had such an amazing experience of, of so many different ideas which emerge. So he describes these orbs, these souls, in their groups, talking, so to speak, sharing experiences, which is interesting. Again, this it's almost like the, the language itself is experience or, or consciousness that is shared back and forth. And they relate, I suppose, their 
time on earth, their different incarnations. He mentions that a soul, should they not understand a particular experience of another soul, can incarnate on earth at any particular time, jump jump in at any point in the river, and and to, I guess, live a life to have that experience, to be able to understand what the other souls are going through. And, and supposedly, from what he describes, it seems like it's pretty instantaneous from the standpoint of that realm, that the soul or orb is not gone for very long. But he mentions that they they have to do this in order to understand really negative-type situations, negative emotions, pain, sorrow, hatred, are ones that he singles out. He, he says that they can't experience those things in this realm. And so in order to relate to, to one another, to transmit whatever that connection is through that thread, a soul can, or an orb can incarnate to experience um, those negative limitations, those, those painful things which we, we, we so dislike, and then be able to share that with other orbs, other souls, um, for whatever the purposes of their conversations are. But what was, what was interesting is that it's it's not a it's not a perfectly blissful type of situation of, of only that there's only good uh, that is important. In fact, the impression I get from Henry is that the negative is is just as important, if not more so. Uh, here's a quote. Though these are negative things, it was important for them to understand and experience them. And he continues from that to say that it is important for these souls, orbs, to experience things, and particularly negative things, in order to evolve into a being like God, who understands and knows all. And so here that suggests a a primal value to consciousness and incarnation in, in that it provides provides the wholeness of what being and existence perhaps could be. That the negative, the evil, the bad, all that has a place in the grand scheme of things and if one only knows the good only only has positive things happen to them then they're incomplete and his suggestion is that or or what the experience suggested to him was that our and goal perhaps is to in, uh, to evolve to a into a being that is akin to god and but he also mentions that that takes a vast amount of knowledge that it's there's so much to learn 
But I found that a very interesting observation that that he includes, because in many near-death experiences, we often hear about a divine plan or God's plan or, or plan for for us or why we incarnate. That perhaps it's some kind of school that Earth is like classes, and there. But there's this. It's kind of vague. Like, okay, what are we? What are we moving towards? Why do we have to learn? What what is, what's the end goal? And here, uh, Henry suggests that it is to become a being like God. Some other near death experiences sometimes suggest that it is to be able to join with God. That that a soul leaves and incarnates to gather these experiences, these good and bad moments throughout one's life. And then to bring them back and to have contributed to the wholeness of, of God. And one thing that I, I do not know is whether we continue to exist individually or not after we die. Whether when someone crosses that threshold into where they can't come to back to their body, whether they reincarnate or whether they continue on as a individual single ego awareness in this other realm or whether they join back to the totality of of the divine or the sacred that is definitely an open question um but interesting here that that again henry suggests that the end goal of 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 our incarnations and reincarnations because he mentions that they're uh, we have many lives, past, past and future and present, which is you know present in in several near death experiences that we've gone through. This idea of of many lives that that is leading towards an accumulation of experience of consciousness in order to. And he he mentions the word evolve into a being. That is like God. And so God would have that that totality, the good and the bad contained in in the totality of the divine. The infinity, perhaps, would contain both. And I thought that was a very interesting idea, and it just shows the perhaps how important this incarnation could be especially when bad things happen to us and and now this is just this is just a hint or a suggestion or this is definitely isn't something set in set in stone or provable in any particular way but it it certainly would be beneficial to think that the bad things that happen to us in life serve some purpose and there are some bad things that happen to people. I mean, it's, you know, absolutely heart-wrenching, some of the things that, that happen. And so I would not be so bold as to suggest to anyone that, that has gone through something terrible that it it um, definitely has a purpose or anything that is up for the individual to decide. But uh, certainly the idea that the negative things play some role and are of some use to something 
even if we can't quite know what it is or quite articulate it, I think that's a very comforting idea, which, which is often expressed in, in many different near-death experiences. So as Henry continues, he talks about he gains some knowledge that he, uh, answering some of his curiosities that he entered the experience with of talking about no, uh, physics, of he mentions he finally understands what E equals MC squared is. And he also talks about, uh, I, I suppose, cosmology, that our universe is one of, of many. He, he uses the image of a Petri dish, bacteria growing, to compare our universe to the supposedly many universes there are, and that each, I suppose, is fine-tuned with its own laws of physics. And, you know, that's something I've heard in, you know, popular science shows and stuff, but I... I can't make any comment and as to what exactly that would refer to and, and comment or modern ideas about cosmology and and what the universe is and, and its shape and if there are other universes and stuff but that's all very interesting uh, especially that that someone would gain some knowledge about that in a, a spiritual experience but again he points out that the the amount of knowledge that a soul needs to gain is is vast, more than we would ever think, which I suppose would would make sense why we would probably have to go through many lives in this particular case, or, or based on that suggestion, if if that were the case, that to gain that amount of knowledge, to be spiritually evolved enough to such a degree as to be like unto God, uh, that would probably <laughs> take a while, I imagine. So uh, that was that was interesting that he pointed that out. And then he goes on to a section which I found, again, very fascinating in saying that God cannot be proved by scientific means, which, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. And, and his rationale for it was, was very interesting and very compelling. I thought that if God were able to be proved by scientific means, then we would uh, quake in fear beneath our overlord and the United Nations would be freaking out and all that stuff, which I think is pretty funny, but, but serves, you know, has a good point to it. So, I, I, you know, that's, I think that's fairly self-evident. And and the same goes for, as far as I can tell, near-death experiences or any kind of spiritual experience, I don't think is going to be proved scientifically, or at least in a way that everyone will agree on. And so that just, that just raises the question of what, what should be the foundation of our belief? And as I've said it multiple times on the podcast, I think it should probably be our own experiences. And I know that's very subjective, but if you take inner experience as seriously as outer experience, you can find your own proof. Because it is objective. It happens to you. A dream or a near-death experience or a, a vision or what have you. There is something objective in it, in that it happens to you. Unfortunately, it cannot be proved by 
any particular scientific means, even if you had a brain scan of, of a extremely divine dream you were having in which you were talking to God, you wouldn't be able to have any particular proof of that, that that is what you were experiencing, of that having any physical reality. But as as objective phenomena of the psyche which happen to us on their own accord, I think that faith and belief can be can be substantiated by experience. And that's difficult to do. And it takes introspection. It takes time to, to be able to look into oneself and, and be able to, to find those moments that, that indicate that. But I will always take that over, over someone else's word for it. Because as great it is, as it is to talk about them and, and to read near-death experiences and to to share our our different experiences it it there's always that gap it's always that gap of i i wasn't there i didn't i didn't go through it there's no way of proving it and that's okay that's how it is it's completely okay but the the proof that i will seek is is inside of myself and i will be on the lookout for and I think that is a uh, a good way to go about it, but certainly certainly not the only way for 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 people. Henry concludes that paragraph by saying, "We need to search out the meaning of our own existence and experience here on earth. Faith is the engine of discovery without without faith, we are just like ants so he he also talks about how in order to have this experience the human experience to have perhaps whatever the important aspects that a conscious experience and a life and an incarnation can provide one has to be physically out of touch with god which again going back to that the idea of a thread and and love as a principle of connection of relation that that uh, the opposite, the principle of separation, things being disconnected and, and discreet, also serves a particular purpose and should be included in our in our totality, I suppose. That there's there's more than just connection, relation, love. But its opposite also serves serves a purpose in, in that perhaps it it's provides those whatever useful experiences that can contribute to whatever process is undergoing in this in this realm that is um, undergoing in the divine and in us, which is a very very deep idea. But I think that is very reassuring to know that it's okay it's okay if we feel disconnected it's okay if we feel uh, a lack of of love or that sort of thing that those 
all of it has its place in this this unfolding of of whatever this process is. So he also talks about how the like I mentioned how bad trauma and pain can be, but he talks about how they're temporary, that in this other realm there is no sense of time, and that I suppose once we are in that realm, or once he is in that realm, that the idea of pain and trauma is just the blink of an eye, that compared to a a relative eternity in this timeless place, that those moments of pain and suffering seem insignificant. In, in terms of their, their length of time and, and the amount we should dwell on them, which is a very comforting idea. And so then as we get towards the end of the experience, he talks about that he always had a, a question in his mind about what, what are ghosts? Are ghosts real? And he gets a very very interesting answer that the I guess a human being is made up of two different forms of spiritual being one that is associated with the body and one that is associated with the soul or the I don't know the divine side and this (laughs) you can you can divide this up so many different ways it makes so many different analogies the uh, body spirit is, he relates to the drives and instincts and need for consumption, uh, protection, all the different drives and, and, and motivations that we have that are worldly and um, sex and power and instinct and all these different, uh, I guess, forces which perhaps define a um, worldly life, ambition, perhaps. And then the soul, the spiritual side, which is, he said, is what distinguishes us from animals, which perhaps would indicate our consciousness, our awareness. And also, he, he uses a couple different ways of describing it, like the sense of awe that you get when you see a, a sunset. Or, or perhaps just this, the sense of meaning or purpose that we feel in our lives or the, the meaning that, that beckons to us in, in certain things that we find interesting or meaningful or, or profound, perhaps. That is coming from that other, that divine soul in man. And so there's a couple different ways that you can talk about it. For, for instance, there's... Um, the psychoanalyst Eric Fromm uh, made a distinction between the having mode and the being mode, which is kind of the same thing. Having mode is a way of being that, or a way of acting in the world that is is more focused on material things, of acquisition, of of perhaps like power and control and and um, objects, perhaps. Whereas the being mode is more focused on things like love or or sense of self or things that are spiritual. And so that would line up pretty well with this distinction between these two souls, which was 
pointed out to Henry in his experience. I mean, you could also you could also just describe it as as your animal side versus your angel side. That there are these two different sides in in man, and 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 they both have an influence on our on our consciousness, on our ego. You know they. <laughs> You know the Snickers commercial where they say you're not you when you're hungry and and whoever the the person is is acting like someone else or acting like a diva or something and they have a Snickers and they're they're back to themselves and I think that points to a, a pretty pretty accurate truth of that our drives our different instincts these archetypal type of forces that are inside of us when they grip us we're not quite ourselves that that they have their own, their own, I don't know, energy to them or their own force to them. Someone in a rage is, is, not, is not going to act like themselves. They'll even say, oh, I, I'm sorry, I wasn't myself or I lost myself for a minute. And, and so these different forces or these different drives and instincts can definitely, uh, I guess, are competing for, for our bandwidth in, in our conscious awareness and are based on certain environmental factors. But then there's also this spiritual side of, of, of meaning and awe and wonder and beauty as, as having its own gripping effect. And so we're, it's, it's almost like, I don't know, the, the picture it makes for me is, is of we're being divided up by these different competing forces and, and from, what I've read of Jungian psychology, the goal should be to integrate all of them into, into one whole and to be conscious of them. That these different archetypes, these different instincts and drives within us should, and, and complexes should be, should be recognized and made conscious and then, and then made whole. The more, the animal side and the and the spiritual side, the animal and the angel, that they both need to be recognized because if you neglect one side, then it's going to come up and rear its ugly head in, in one way or another. Um, and so it, it, to achieve that wholeness, which I think lines up pretty well with with what Henry is suggesting from this experience of of the wholeness of a human life is... Is valuable. The negative, the bad, the, the anger, the pain, the suffering—all of that has some use. And so, to shun all of that in life, or or even the 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 negative things about ourselves that perhaps we don't like—all of those serve a have a place. And I'm not saying that 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 means you should go out and treat people badly or something, but it. But to recognize the your own shadow, the the shadow side of yourself, the animal side, the the materialistic drives, the um, urges, the cravings, all that stuff, all that stuff has a place, and might not necessarily need to be acted out in the world because that would probably could make things worse for everybody, but needs to be made made conscious and not brushed under the rug like it's not there. And that is in addition to 
our our spiritual instincts, the spiritual side of meaning and wonder and awe, which which calls to us as well. Um, and so to continue talking about this this division between the souls. Well, I guess before I get into all that, I'll I'll reiterate what what Henry explains is that the the body soul, the body spirit, in a in the case of a violent or sudden death, doesn't have time to uh, dissolve. I suppose, in the case of a natural death, and so is set free on the earth for a little while, and and he mentions that it has no no personality or anything, but it's just a, a bundle of drives and desires, and that is what a ghost is, which is a very interesting idea, and that the spiritual side is something which, which I suppose enters the other realm. But that would suggest that in the cases where where people tend to have some time to prepare for death or at least have some idea that death is coming, perhaps in the case of someone who's slowly dying or at the end of their life, that there could be a gradual dissolving of these, uh, I don't know, animalistic drives, instincts, that sort of thing, which comprise the, the body spirit, the side of the body that is, um, you know, evolutionarily determined and, and has its specific roles to, to fulfill of eating and, and consumption and all that material stuff, that can gradually fade away into where there is no ghost wandering around. But interesting that, again, he mentions that they, they tend to dissolve after some time. So I try to get away from the book by Marie-Louise von Franz on Dreams and Death, but it keeps on pulling me back. <laughs> it keeps, keeps on being relevant to uh, what we talk about because there are several passages in which she talks about these divisions of the, the soul of the, or the psyche in cases of death and, and perhaps what it might mean for, for us. And so I wanted to read a few of those. Now, this is something that we've discussed briefly back in Cheng Guan's near-death experience, which is a couple episodes ago, in which she she was having trouble breathing and she was floating above her body watching her body struggle to breathe. And so she had this division. of, of There were two of her. And she was experiencing both at the same time, which would line up very well with, with Henry's uh, description of, of the composition of our souls and, and the roles that they play. But uh, I read a little bit from On Dreams and Death back in that episode, and I thought it would be useful to probably reread that passage and also a couple others just just so we can fully explore this, because it's a fascinating idea, and, and that's something that's really been interesting me lately, of, of this I, idea of, of where, does, where does psyche meet matter? Where does, where does the soul meet the body? 
And obviously, that's, there's not going to be any easy answer to that. But there are lots of spiritual beliefs about souls and, and the different types of souls, the soul and the spirits and the breath body and the astral body and all these different things, which, frankly, have been somewhat confusing to, to read through. But I thought it would be useful, at least in, in this discussion, um, based on what Henry experienced, to try and explore that idea further. So there are three different sections of On Dreams and Death that I'm going to read. It might be somewhat long, but uh, I'm hoping that, again, as a, a, a way of talking around this idea, it gives us gives us more context and ideas to play with and to try to understand and, uh, what's going on and, and what is suggested by um, the things that Henry learned. Okay, so this is the first passage that I'm going to read from On Dreams and Death. I have found two cases among the reports of dying people which seem to allude to such alchemical astrological ideas. The first comes from the prominent doctor and parapsychologist Sir Auckland Giddy. Quote, On Saturday, the 9th of November, one minute before midnight, I began to feel very ill, and at two o'clock I suffered an acute gastroenteritis. By eight o'clock I had all the symptoms of an acute poisoning. I could hardly count my pulse or my breathing. I wanted to ring for help, but I realized that I could no longer do so, so I gave up the attempt quite calmly. It was clear to me that I was very ill, and I went over my financial situation very briefly. During all this time, consciousness seemed in no way to be clouded. But suddenly, I noticed that consciousness had separated itself from another consciousness, which was also in me. In order to describe this phenomenon better, let me call them A-consciousness and B-consciousness. In all that follows, my ego and my A-consciousness were attached to each other. I noticed that the B-personality belonged to my body. As my physical condition became more and more serious, and my heart scarcely beat at all, I realized that the B-consciousness, which belonged to the body, began to show signs of a complicated structure. That is, it constructed itself out of physical sensations in the head, the heart, and the entrails. These components then became independent of each other, and the B-consciousness began to fall apart, whereas the A-consciousness, which was now I, myself, seemed to be completely outside the body, which I could now observe. Gradually, I realized that I could not only see my body and the bed in which I lay, but also everything in the house and the garden. And then I noticed that I could not only see objects in the house, but also things in London and in Scotland, wherever I directed my attention. From a source unknown to me, which I called my mentor, I was instructed that I was completely free in a time dimension of space, in which the quote now was, in a way, equivalent to the quote there in the ordinary three-dimensional space of everyday life. I saw then that the doctor had been called, 
and he gave my lifeless body an injection of camphor, and I was drawn back. I went back reluctantly, back to my body. End quote. When a woman patient was brought back to life by her doctors from a diabetic coma, she reported, quote, I saw that I was being carried away in small parts. All of my parts had different colors. Everything was separated from the trunk of my body. Over there lay the liver, here the heart, and there the lungs. They formed a color game, profound and beautiful and I saw that I was carried away to the kingdom of light. When she had to return to her body, the organs were together again. End quote. Whereas Getty does not pursue the disintegration of bee consciousness any further, this woman is interested in her disintegrating organs. She especially emphasizes their colors, the beautiful, quote, color game, which others also describe, not so much in connection with the body as with their experience of the beyond. If we try to view these modern experiences in the light of the statements of the Egyptian ritual for the dead, there arises for me the following hypothesis. During mummification, the organs of the body were assigned specific gods, that is, psychologically different archetypes of the collective unconscious. The latter seemed to be projected, as it were, onto the body, or to be incarnated in it. Body consciousness, Getty's bee consciousness, seems to dissolve at the approach of death, like the dead in the mummification ritual who are first dissolved in the primal waters of Nun. During the ritual for the dead, however, a further step is taken. The deified, transfigured body is reassembled into a new unity, newly united with the sun god Ra, and with the other soul parts. Getty's A-consciousness would correspond in Egypt to the mentor, the voice of instruction, the Ba-soul, which, for example, appears in the famous Egyptian text, the dialogue of a world-weary man with his Ba, as an instructing spirit. I believe, therefore, that Homp is not necessarily right when he assumes that B-consciousness dissolves definitively. It seems that perhaps only a momentary dissolution takes place for the purpose of transformation. This, however, appears to be dependent, somehow, on human effort, on an opus. Okay, so there were a couple reasons I wanted to read that. First and foremost being, Marie-Louise von Franz goes on to refer to this near-death experience that Getty has. Um, in several different instances when talking about these different spirits or souls or, or aspects of consciousness. And here this very much lines up with what Henry talked about in terms of a, an ego, a personality, the, the I, quote-unquote, being one consciousness, consciousness A, and then a, another consciousness that is associated with the body, which he calls consciousness B. And Getty goes on to describe the particularly sen uh, sensations of his, of his entrails and his, his different organs. And then uh, von Franz continues by bringing up a, another experience of a woman who saw her different organs being carried away and having different colors. 
And then she connects that with um, something she had been talking about previously to this passage, which is the Egyptian death liturgy and, and rituals of mummification, and, and in particular, why they might have done the, the things that they did. And she thinks that perhaps they projected onto the different organs, different gods, that in some connection with this idea of, of the body having a spirit in each organ having a particular aspect of consciousness or the psyche attached to it, then had certain rituals performed with it and, and, and that um, eventually they are reassembled in some form as a resurrection body, which, which she goes on to talk about quite a lot. And so here, von Franz takes a different approach, um, which slightly disagrees with with what Henry learned was is that she doesn't seem to think that they would disappear indefinitely. But perhaps what she goes on to say is that perhaps it is dependent on our own experiences and our own actions in life, and that's something that she elaborates on further. And she relates this to um, some of the ideas of alchemy and and the idea of an opus of to making uh, to creating the philosopher's stone or creating the diamond body in in Buddhist um, terms through through meditation through introspection through work and so I know this it, it gets all over the place but it's it's fascinating that people's beliefs about death have stretched back for thousands of years and, and there are all these different aspects which we might be able to tie in and, and elucidate by by looking at what different cultures and different societies throughout history and time have have thought about death. For instance, I think uh, um, von Franz mentions that the Chinese have a, a similar idea of, of the splitting of of two different consciousnesses and, and that that one of them, the one that descends to the earth, does dissolve, um, which lines up with what Henry learned. And so that's something we're going to get to here in a second. I'll, I will read that momentarily. Um, the next passage. Yeah, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, this we'll talk about it in this next passage. So... Continuing on, the uncertainty which emerges in these witnesses as to what the ego and consciousness actually are and what their capacity for transformation is has an extensive historical background. The majority of peoples who are close to nature believe that man has not just one but different souls which separate after death, sometimes completely. What ethnologists refer to as a soul is mostly an ego soul or a free soul. It is regarded as the focal point of thinking. It lives in the head or in the heart and survives death to live in a place in the beyond. In our material, this soul would correspond to the relation of the ego to the light being, the self, or the purified ego. A further soul, the so-called, quote, image soul, is a kind of mirror soul. It appears also in the shadow of man and is activated in dreams, in visions, 
and in unconsciousness. According to the belief of some peoples, it lives outside the individual during his lifetime as a bush soul or an outer soul or in an object or a container. This soul also continues to exist after death as a ghost. In our context, it would correspond to the Egyptian Ba, which normally appears after death. Numerous tribes living close to nature speak about another soul, a kind of, quote, vital soul, or breath soul. This is the force that activates the life of the organism. It is more physical than the image soul. According to the opinion of some tribes, this soul also continues to exist, but in another place, often a place like the underworld. According to other tribes, like the body, it perishes. Of course, one must be very careful here in the use of the word soul. It is not related in any way to our common understanding of the word. Images referring to it also vary, or they overlap. For instance, in Egypt, the quote, free soul, would refer more often to the Ba, although sometimes, as shadow or mirror image, it would correspond rather to the Ka. The vital soul, or breath soul, would correspond in our context to Getty's B consciousness, or to the little man in the vision of the Swedish patient. Although many peoples believe in four, five, or more, up to 13 souls in man, a partition into two is more noticeably widespread. The two are usually a spiritual, free, not quite incarnated soul, and one more attached to the physical body. From the point of view of depth psychology, however, both kinds of souls are aspects of one psychic totality, the self. It seems, therefore, as if the self, the divine center in man, possesses two aspects, one non-incarnated, purely spiritual, timeless, eternal, the other demiurgical, manifesting itself in physical matter. To redeem the latter and reunite it with the eternal aspect depends, according to the alchemists, on the efforts of man. Only with effort can one become completely whole. Seen in this light, the actual resurrection is just this union of the two aspects of the self, a second death marriage. The 13th century alchemist Petrus Bonus described this second union in the following way, quote, In the conjunctional resurrection, the body becomes completely spiritual like the soul itself and they become one, as one mixes water with water, since there is no longer any difference between them, but rather a unity of all three, namely of spirit, soul, and body, without separation, in eternity. End quote. A very close parallel idea of a duality that must be overcome is found in Taoistic alchemy. Quite generally speaking, the Chinese assumed that when a man died, a bipartition took place first, in which his body-soul, Po, sinks downward, whereas his spirit-like soul, Hun, rises upward. The Po, Getty's B-consciousness, dissolves but does not disappear. Its, quote, units just separate but continue to exist as forces, 
as tendencies ready to take up a new becoming in the soul of the land or of the earth, which in psychological language means in the realm of the collective unconscious. A kind of spiritual consciousness, on the other hand, is attained in the Hun. This, however, if it is without body, has a tendency to fade away gradually in a second death, unless the individual, during his lifetime, has concentrated so much on his future life that he has built a subtle body around himself, a body of thoughts and deeds, here again the fruit, of a spiritual kind, which then supports the Hun and protects it from disassociation. On the other hand, whoever has not built for himself such a spirit body is dependent on an ancestor cult among his survivors to be able to continue to exist, in order to be incarnated anew among the same kin. Jung observed a similar bipartition in people who faced immediate death. He comments in a letter on the strange change in a dying patient, a woman who seemed to linger on in an ecstasy. Quote, Such a thing is possible only when there is a detachment of the soul from the body. When that takes place and the patient lives on, one can almost with certainty expect a certain deterioration of the character insomuch as the superior and most essential part of the soul has already left. Such an experience denotes a partial death. It is, of course, a most aggravating experience for the environment, as a person whose personality is so well known seems to lose it completely and shows nothing more than demoralization. But it is the lower man that keeps on living with the body, and who is nothing else but the life of the body. End quote. Jung's remark is similar to the Chinese description of the separation of the Han and the Po at death. He continues quote, With old people or with persons seriously ill, it often happens that they have peculiar states of withdrawal or absent mindedness, which they themselves cannot explain but which are presumably conditions in which the detachment takes place. It is sometimes a process that lasts very long. What is happening seems to me that it is as if such conditions had an inner consciousness, which is so remote from our matter-of-fact consciousness that it is almost impossible to retranslate its contents into the terms of our actual consciousness. I must say that I have had some experiences along that line. They have given me a very different idea about what death means. End quote. I have also observed such psychic states in some people. In these cases, a second consciousness was often present, a superficial, everyday consciousness, which seemed to have no notion of impending death, and even made mundane future plans and a deeper, more serious consciousness, which broke through from time to time with casual remarks which made clear that the dying person was well aware of the impending end and was preparing himself for it. This, quote, deeper consciousness belongs presumably to the self, which is partially out of time and space, and it is therefore that part of man which survives death. The Chinese Po, the body-bound life force, maintains a kind of impersonal inheritance, 
one could say it has, quote, complexes, which do not belong just to the individual. Jung writes in a letter, quote, Our life is not made entirely by ourselves. The main bulk of it is brought into existence out of sources that are hidden to us. Even complexes can start a century or more before a man is born. There is something like karma. End quote. The ancient Chinese expressed this insight in the following way The body soul elements of the vegetative Po are dispersed and are ready for a new existence. They enter into the soul of the land, a kind of life reservoir from which the ancestors emerged and from which the grandchildren will arise again, that is, into the collective unconscious. Chosen people, however, instead of falling into this dispersion, are able to become a Shen, an agent of divinity, and no longer have to return. These are the people who, through meditation, have brought their entelechy to a continuous, quote, circle of light. The famous Taoistic alchemical text, The Secret of the Golden Flower, refers to this great work. The analogy to Western alchemy and to the Egyptian cult of the dead is obvious. A spiritual opus is needed by man in order to produce a resurrection body. In Buddhism, the diamond body. First of all, we must return to the duality of the Hun and Po. The task of the Taoistic alchemical opus, or of this kind of meditation, is not to suppress the thoughts of the Po, which belong to the female yin principle, but rather to transform them into thoughts of the Hun, yang. These thoughts of the yin are, quote, distinctive, discriminating. They have their source in a consciousness that has turned to the outer world. Only after their transformation do they also become rooted in the creative, harmonious principle of the universe, in Tao. Consciousness that has been transformed in this way is also referred to as, quote, holy embryo. It is the Dharma body, a form of higher consciousness. The Po is that ego which still hopes, desires, wishes, and experiences fear, and thus lets the life energy, qi, flow outward. It corresponds to Getty's B consciousness, or to an everyday ego that has not been purified. The work consists in its transformation into an interiorized spiritual consciousness. This is the, quote, fruit which is being preserved after the destruction of the body and death, the, quote, one grain of corn. Accordingly, therefore, this body which survives death would, in psychological terms, be made up of everything from the collective unconscious which the individual had, in life, brought into consciousness. That which our everyday ego thinks, does, feels, etc., throughout the day, escapes into the outer world, and finally gets lost there. But when something meaningful, which can be recognized by means of a strong emotion, breaks into our life, then there is a chance for us to make its archetypal, that is, spiritual meaning, conscious. In this way, a piece of something eternal and infinite is realized in our earthly existence, and that means, in a literal sense, 
that it has become real. So, affects and emotions which belong to the body-soul should not be repressed and overcome, as some Christian teachings advise. One should confront them in oneself and search for the deeper meanings behind their exterior expressions of desiring and willing to act. Usually this confrontation does not end without a struggle, for it is in the nature of affects to seduce us into impulsive actions or to hold us tenaciously in the circumstances placed before us in the outer world. To concentrate instead on the deeper meaning of such impulses requires a conscious decision, a turning back or confrontation with one's own emotions. This, in the last analysis, is the meaning of the cross in Christianity, or of the crucifixion, complete endurance of the conflict between violent emotions and their spiritual meaning. This spiritual meaning, however, reveals itself only when one confronts the conflict without reservation. Then there occurs, one cannot make it happen, a transformation that leads to the union of the opposites, and out of that union, the glorified body apparently emerges that survives death and that the alchemists called their stone. Okay, so there's a lot there in that passage, so I'm going to do my best to try to synthesize it and relate it back to Henry's near-death experience and, and what we can learn from it. Uh, just to start off talking about... The reason I keep coming back to this book is it brings together so many different ideas about death from different cultures, different contexts, different societies. It's such a useful resource, especially when dealing with such a wide variety of people, not only people's beliefs about death, but also people's experiences of death and NDEs and, and spiritual experiences that people have, the wide varieties that we come across. So in order to, to make sense of all the, the different things that we see, it's important to be able to draw on all these different ideas. And this book is great about that. So she starts off by talking about some of the different ideas that, that have emerged in uh, ethnographies and different cultures and anthropology from around the world of people's ideas about the soul. And there seems to be a lot of different ideas about the soul, that there's, it could be multiple souls, that uh, there's a mirror image soul, which can be projected out onto the world in which the individual would, would have some relation with their own soul in, in the spirit of an animal or a plant, a bush soul, as it is called, in certain contexts. Um, there are certain beliefs about whether these souls perish or whether they continue on. But she mentions that there is the most widespread belief lines up with what we see in Henry's near-death experience of, of these two different types of souls. One that is spiritually bound, a, a spiritual, free, um, divine, the one that we would associate with our consciousness, our, our sense of self, going back to the previous passage, that would be Getty's A consciousness, and then a body soul or breath soul or, or one that is associated with the body, 
with uh, matter and our drives and instincts and the animal side of us, so to speak. And these are all such complicated things, and they, they have so many different aspects to them that it, it makes perfect sense to me that different cultures would assign, say there are different, like four or five souls, or, you know, that they divvy them up in different ways. They, they divide the souls into different categories and different names. And, you know, just as when dealing with archetypes or, or images or any kind of symbols, it, these things aren't, they're not just one thing. They're, they're kind of a continuum. They, they spread out into one another and they overlap. This is something we were talking about a, a few episodes ago with the idea of the Oxus Mundi could be a, a pole, a pillar to heaven or a, uh, a tree, a mountain, um, it, it can be so many different things that that w- they're kind of amorphous in a way. And, and so some of these different beliefs that people have in their um, uh, indigenous peoples or, or even major religions can be, have to do with these, these the kind of uh, the continuum of, of these different ideas and these images that emerge in people's psyche. Um, about death and people's experiences of death, that they can be divided up and and talked about in different ways. Like perhaps one tribe could divide up the body soul into the animal instincts of the drives and then ones that is more culturally (laughs) mediated or something. I don't know, like has to do more with with the tribe and and with uh, one's... um, one's profession and one what role one has in the family and and so on and so forth. Now I'm just making that up, but just to give an example of how uh, how these beliefs can be culturally mediated and and one single experience can be talked about in many different ways. But again, I found the the corroboration of this this evidence with Henry's experience very interesting that again this backs up at least what he experienced it as as in something obviously it doesn't prove it. it that's not the right language to to use to talk about it but but to suggest that there's something there that we ought to pay attention to that to suggest that perhaps we are an amalgamate an amalgamation of of both body a both body <laughs> spirit and a more heavenly spirit, so to speak, and that we have to we have to reconcile those. As Marie Louise von Franz points out, uh, from the point of view of depth psychology, however, both kinds of soul are aspects of one psychic totality, the self, and how it appears in in our inner experiences and our outer experiences as well. So uh, that that idea continues on into what uh, perhaps our the role, our actions, and our our work throughout our lives and our maturing and our coming to consciousness may play a role in in the interaction between these two types of souls in in us whether they become more integrated or, or whether they 
do different things <laughs> at death. It's all it's all a little blurry, like because there's so many different beliefs. Like does the does the body soul uh, return to the earth and gets born again, or does do aspects of of it get taken up into the beyond where they're of use? Of the does the integration of the body soul with the spiritual soul allow the spiritual soul to exist for longer in this otherworldly afterlife realm? Those are all very interesting questions, and they're not completely clear. As you can tell, but interesting to dive into. She continues into uh, Taoistic alchemy in uh, Chinese alchemy. Again, this distinction, uh, which lines up perfectly with Getty's experience, which we talked about earlier, and then uh, Henry's experience as well of of the Po soul, which is the body soul, the the B consciousness of Getty. And then the Hun, which is the more spiritual side, the A consciousness, the ego side, the the part that I suppose we identify with that continues into the afterlife in in Henry's case as well. But again, there the, it gets into this place of there's this there's something to be done about it. And she talks about how the the actions of the individual throughout the lifetime can affect the interplay between those two type of souls in this uh, Chinese alchemical system. And then she makes uh, makes references to a few of Jung's quotes about the change in people's attitudes on their deathbed and how that can perhaps suggest um, certain bipartition or fragmenting of consciousness that a, a certain spiritual part of people perhaps is is being i don't know drawn to another place where uh only the body spirit starts to inhabit the the individual on the on the brink of death to where people think they they aren't quite acting like they usually do that somewhat lines up with with Henry's knowledge as well that uh, when the body is not giving an ample chance to die properly, then it goes on living in this form of a bundle of desires and habits and motivations and drives in the form of a ghost, which he also describes as like a shell, that it has no no substance in itself, but the he says that the ghost is in its true place when it is... It, it is united with the body and soul spirits together. Which again, is that idea of wholeness, of integration. And that, that is the question that I, I have when reading this, is does, does that have some relation into what the spiritual side of man needs after death? Does there need to be some integration of the body? Does... Does that bringing together of the body and the soul have some role to play in the afterlife? And that is a very, very good question, I suppose. Um, towards the end of the chapter, Marie-Louise von Franz suggests that it does, that 
there are, uh, at least in the Chinese alchemical uh, belief system, that the spiritual side, the Hun soul, will dissolve in a second death in the afterlife if it does not have that integration with the body. And she goes on to describe what that might mean and relates it to the um, Buddhist idea of, of the goal of meditation being to create a diamond body. And this is also related to the ideas about creating a resurrection body in, in, in the Egyptian context and, and perhaps even Christian and Islamic context. I mean, it, it's very wide-ranging and, and fascinating. But the, at least the idea she expresses here is that to make conscious of, of the body, to make the, the spiritual meaning of the body and those desires, those different drives, which Henry describes in, in A Ghost, to make the spiritual aspect of those conscious makes a sort of integration between this body, spirit, and, and a soul that by understanding the things that we're drawn to in the body and in the world and in the flesh, what the spiritual meaning behind that is, then we are able to make that conscious and not act it out like zombies. Like when we're... Like if, if you tend to get angry in a certain situation when, when someone is talking about a, perhaps a certain subject or... Or if you're frustrated and, and you tend to lash out in given situations, why do you do that? That's that process of introspection, of, of finding that spiritual meaning. And I even think this relates back to something that Henry mentioned, that the, um, he's talking about why good things hap- or, sorry, bad things happen to good people, and he goes on to talk about uh, what the process of life is like. He says... We start this life with a blank piece of paper. With every incident we experience, a part of the blueprint is recorded until a complete plan for an individual is created. This blueprint dictates the end of our lives. To live happily in this realm is to become aware of the blueprint and change it. So, that idea of okay, in this situation, I tend to do this, have this certain, certain emotional reaction and lash out in a certain way. That's the blueprint. And what Henry is suggesting is in order to be happy, we must become conscious of, of our, these unconscious plans that we construct throughout our experiences in our lives. To make them conscious, we can choose which ones will be the best what what will be most beneficial in our lives and and for everybody else and that goes i i think right in line with what uh von franz is talking about that we must the, the idea of this work this opus in the alchemical sense the creation of the, the stone is a work in oneself it's like a kind of meditation to to recognize when we're being, I don't know, being in the, um, living in the having mode of, of wanting things and, and desires. When we're scrolling through Facebook and, and 
gazing at people that we want to look like or places that we want to go and trying to understand what what is that indicating um, in, inside of us spiritually? What is, what is that referring to? What are we projecting out onto a given situation and, and a given habit or behavior that we tend to act out continuously? And that if we can come to some realization about what what perhaps we're we keep repeating we keep doing in, in these particular desires and cravings and and um, drives that we, we we act out then we can become more integrated and that ha- plays some role in the continuation of the body the continuation of life after death perhaps the Ability not to have to reincarnate. So that's that. That's a big question mark at the end, but it's a fascinating idea, particularly because it is at the basis of so many wisdom traditions to try to become enlightened, perhaps. And so that's something that we will continue to talk about in this this last passage, which I am going to read from On Dreams and Death. And it's, it's again, reiterating some of this, these ideas of, uh, about the divisions of the soul and the divisions of, of these different aspects of ourselves, this conglomeration that we have to deal with of both spiritual and, and physical instinctual forces and, and what, what we should do about that and how it expresses itself. So this is... Uh, the last thing I'm going to read from On Dreams and Death in this episode. I <laughs> can't guarantee I won't do it again in the next one, but for this episode, this will be the last one. In the West, during the Renaissance, the alchemical tradition of the astral body was especially highly developed by Paracelsus. In the Liber de Lunaticis, he states that, quote, There are in man two bodies, one compounded of the elements, the other of the stars. In death, the elemental body goes to the grave together with its spirit, but the ethereal bodies are consumed in the firmament. Paracelsus refers here to the sidereal or astral body, which indeed wanders around for some time after death as a mirror image or ghost but is then gradually reabsorbed by the stars. Only the spirit of the image of God goes to him whose image it is, that is, the immortal soul germ, psychologically the self. The astral body is thus looked upon sometimes by these writers as being transient, at other times as imperishable. Obviously, it is associated with what we would call the collective unconscious today. For since antiquity, the celestial bodies have been regarded as gods, in Islam as angels. Therefore, from the point of view of modern man, they are archetypal symbols, representing in their entirety the collective unconscious. Consequently, there arises, in this connection, a great uncertainty. What happens to the so-called collective unconscious in man at death? Does this soul layer survive with him, or does man separate from it? 
since it has never really been part of his personality or become part of his consciousness, or is a part of it, according to Proclus, that point which is situated above the moon, preserved together with the, quote, light body, and another part, the sublunary, cast aside? Or does the cosmic aspect of the collective unconscious continue to exist, separated from the deceased, while there remains with him only that aspect which had been incarnated in him? Sheikh Ahmad seems to incline toward the latter point of view. This is why, to further interpret Corban's reflection psychologically, I would like to consider once again his idea more closely. Ahmad believes, following Avicenna's cosmology, in an earth which is situated between the upper realm of the intelligible, of the pure mind of platonic ideas, and the coarse material earth. In it live the souls and certain angels. Its dimension is not that of the world of the senses, but of active imagination, that is, an imagination which perceives and gives shape to that which is psychologically objective and true, contrary to hallucinatory wish-fulfillment dreams and illusions. It corresponds, as Corban notes, to the maginatio vera of the alchemists, in contradistinction to the imaginatio fantastica. This, quote, true imagination is the origin of all religious experience, of visions, charismata, revelations, true insights, etc. This realm, which is that of the earth Herkalia, which is the center of the whole world, mediates between the realm of pure spirit and that of coarse matter. It is a coincidentia oppositorum, a region where the soul and body meet indistinguishably in the center. In the language of depth psychology, this, quote, earth, as Corban recognizes, is indeed a mundus archetypus, but, one should add, it is the mundus archetypus which has been united with the archetype of the self. Jung, following the Occidental tradition, calls this union the unus mundus, and has described it as the background of synchronistic events in the coarse material realm. In a letter to Pastor Fritz Pfafflin, Jung refers to such a subtle body world or earth in the beyond. Pfafflin had written to Jung that he had distinctly felt the presence of his brother, who had died in Africa in an accident, and had had a conversation with him. Jung replied, quote, Now with regard to the exceedingly interesting conversation you had post-mortem with your brother, it has all the characteristic features of these experiences. For one thing, there is the peculiar preoccupation of the dead with the psychic states of other dead persons. For another, the existence of psychic shrines or places of healing. I have long thought that religious institutions, churches, monasteries, temples, etc., as well as rites and psychotherapeutic attempts at healing, were modeled on transcendental, post-mortal psychic states, a real ecclesia spiritualis as the prototype of the una sancta upon the earth. In the East, these ideas would be by no means unheard of. 
Buddhist philosophy, for instance, has coined the concept of Sambhogakaya for this psychic existence, namely the world of subtle forms, which are to the Nirmanakaya as the breath body, subtle body is to the material body. The breath world is thought of as an intermediate state between Nirmanakaya and Dharmakaya. In Dharmakaya, which symbolizes the highest state, the separation of forms is dissolved into absolute unity and formlessness. End quote. In the same letter, Jung also suggests that in the deepest layers of the unconscious, which seem to be spaceless and timeless, there prevails, quote, a relative eternality and a relative non-separation from other psyches, or a oneness with them, end quote. This sphere is obviously identical with the Herkalya earth of Islamic mysticism. Contact with this world of the Unus Mundus is vital for man. The entire process which today we call individuation is in its service. Now we better understand what Jung writes in his memoirs, quote, The decisive question for man is, is he related to something infinite or not? That is the telling question of his life. Only if we know that the thing which truly matters is the infinite can we avoid fixing our interest upon futilities and upon all kinds of goals which are not of real importance. Thus we demand that the world grant us recognition for qualities which we regard as personal possessions. The more a man lays stress on false possessions, and the less sensitivity he has for what is essential, the less satisfying is his life. If we understand and feel that here in this life we already have a link with the infinite, desires and attitudes change. In the final analysis, we count for something only because of the essential we embody, and if we do not embody that, life is wasted. The feeling for the infinite, however, can be attained only if we are bounded to the utmost. The greatest limitation for man is the self. It is manifested in the experience, quote, I am only that. Only consciousness of our narrow confinement in the self forms the link to the limitlessness of the unconscious. End quote. In this sense, the infinite, the unconscious, has a meaning only when it is linked to consciousness. Otherwise, it is, as it were, lost in itself. It seems that only that part of it which one has made conscious does one take with him as, quote, fruit into the beyond. This fruit seems to have the positive, long-lasting influence in the treasure house or in the library or in the grain barn of the beyond. The same motif can also be seen in the application of astrological ideas. Astrological constellations represent the collective unconscious. They are images of the archetypes projected onto the sky. The natal horoscope presents a special, individual combination of archetypal, i.e. collective, elements, similar to the collective character of biological hereditary factors. But in the individual, they take on an individual combination. The combination of stars in the horoscope makes clear, to a large extent, 
the individual being, and also his psychic fate. Similarly, we know from experience that we can by no means make conscious or integrate any archetype per se in its entirety. We can make conscious only that which offers itself to us from outside as a fated event or from inside in the course of our life, and apparently, as stated, only that remains with us in death. But the act of making something conscious depends finally on the connection of the ego with the infinite or with something divine. To succumb to or to be possessed by an archetype can happen to anyone. Psychically, nothing has been accomplished thereby. The demon simply comes and goes again. Only a conscious realization of the self, which as spiritus rector of all biological and psychological occurrences represents the eventual unity of all archetypes, seems to represent a possession which cannot be lost, even in death. Okay, so with this last passage, we're getting a little farther afield from where we originally started with, with the idea of, of what a ghost is and, and the, I guess, the partition in the soul of, of all of us, the, or the consciousness of all of us, the part that is, consists of the, the body and, and the animal drives and then the, the soul or the spiritual side. And while we start off in that passage talking about, uh, it's essentially reiterated by um, the alchemist Paracelsus and the Renaissance, talking about how there's two bodies in man, the one of the elements and one of the stars. Uh, Marie-Louise von Franz continues to uh, go on to talk about what, what the unification of those two things might look like and what the implications are and all those surrounding questions to, to try and explore that a little bit. For instance, she talks about, uh, like I mentioned before, the, what, what do these drives and instincts and these um, aspects of a collective unconscious, these, these parts of us which we all inherit, what, what role do they play in, in life after death? What do they do for us when we die? What do these instincts and forces and drives, what, what role do they have to play in our lives and, and in death? And to do that, she, she talks, ends up talking about some further work uh, um, of Corban on Islamic mysticism. Another reason I, I need to start reading some Henri Corbon uh, and some of his work because it's fascinating and 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 particularly what he he studied was was Sufism, Islamic mystic traditions, and she mentions that one of uh, one of the subjects of his work was Sheikh Ahmad, and he had this I guess conception of of there being this world in between the physical world and the uh, height of the spiritual world, so to speak. Perhaps, uh, again, this, this could be this, this continuum between these two states of being, 
and I found this particularly fascinating because this is a great description of what we usually, well, come across in near-death experiences. It's this intermingling, this interpenetration of, of these physical earthly forms of gardens or a city or a field or a river or, you know, all these earthly things that, that pop up symbolically in, in a near-death experience. And at the same time, this interpenetration of this spiritual side of oneness, of unity, um, all the different aspects uh, profound meaning, profound um, strength of emotion, belonging, a sense of home, all these things, a connection to the all-encompassing light, that sort of thing, coming from that higher spiritual place. And, and it meets in this almost in-between type of world, which in um, from uh, Corban, he talks about that, that is an earth they called Herkalia, Herkalia, I guess. It's kind of a difficult spelling. But that that lines up with some ideas of the alchemists, on uh, the Western alchemists, on the idea of, of true uh, imagination and, 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 and an imaginal realm. Sorry, that's kind of hard to say. An imaginal realm where the oneness of, of spirit and the uh, separateness of of matter and particular forms meet and commingle in, in a true sort of imagination, and that this, which would line up with uh, Jung's ideas of the unconscious, and that, and that this realm and this state of imagination, you have both combining in a particular meaning, uh, meaningful way, and again. Uh, uh, von Franz mentions that this is a coincidentia oppositorum, a conjunction of opposites, the bringing together, which, uh, like we've been talking about with these two sides of the soul, which was brought up by Henry's experience, the, the body side and the, the spiritual side, perhaps an integration of bringing together of those, those two things can have profound effects, not only on your life, but perhaps on death and what happens to you after death. Uh, Jung, in his letter, brings up a similar conception uh, in the Buddhists with the ideas of uh, Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya, and Dharmakaya, these three different levels, uh, the Dharmakaya representing the, the totality of, of oneness of the spirit. And then he reiterates that they at the highest point in the uh, the highest uh, as high as you can go in this spiritual realm it just seems to be oneness that there's a, a non-separation of things and and frankly that I mean that's what we see almost all the time in near-death experiences this sense of of oneness of, of connection here in Henry's near-death experience all of the orbs were connected by threads stretching out to infinity, and Henry associated that with connecting it to God. Again, they're at a certain point in as you, I don't know, go up in levels of of 
this realm or, or, or whatever you want to call it, this state, it seems to coincide with everything merging into one, which is obviously associated with the divine, with God, the sacred. And so that is that is fascinating. And, and, and the fact that there is a almost a physical approximation of that that we can do in our own lives of of that integration and and bringing together and making conscious of of the body and and the spirit that that raising of consciousness and that the effects that that has is is absolutely it's it's just mind-blowing I, I, I it's completely fascinating to me and and then Jung has the quote about the question that matters most to man is, are we connected to something infinite? And we can really only matter if we are connected to something infinite, which in Henry's experience uh, is clearly indicated explicitly that this realm that he finds himself in going through the doorway is infinite, that continues on of all these different souls. And in terms of what, what, what role we play, what we're doing, why this, this uh, idea that Henry raises of, of evolving t- towards a being like God, that what, what does that mean? Why, why do we have to suffer? Why do we have to have pain? Why, why, are we here? All those questions, oops, sorry, hit the mic stand. All of those questions are, I think, pretty well summed up in this, um, these few sentences by Marie-Louise von Franz. In this sense, the infinite, the unconscious, has a meaning only when it is linked to consciousness. Otherwise, it is, as it were, lost in itself. It seems that only that part of it which one has made conscious does one take with him as fruit into the beyond. I think that's a great summation that that we must play, or perhaps, I won't say must, because this is all obviously quite speculative and not uh, scientific in an objective material sense, but perhaps... Uh, objectively in a psychological sense, but um, that perhaps we play some role in making, making conscious the totality of, of being and experience, and that gives it meaning. And by our own growth of consciousness and our experiences and the integration that that provides and affords us, that that plays some profound role in the transformation or the process of unfolding in the sacred or the divine or God or the infinite. That for some reason the infinite needs the finite. That God needs us for for some purpose and that has to, what is suggested is that has to do with our experiences and perhaps the growth of consciousness, the um, progress towards enlightenment, the realization of, of illusion, uh, 
those sorts of things play some role. And that those aspects that, that we make conscious um, are the fruit of our lives and that those things are, are what we may carry on with us into the, uh, the afterlife or the next life. And that supposedly would have some cumulative effect. For instance, all of Henry's uh, souls that were around him were sharing experiences. And for some reason, it was important for every orb or soul to be able to understand the other in terms of the experiences that it had gone through. And so it would incarnate on Earth to have have the necessary consciousness and knowledge in order to better understand one another, perhaps better connect with one another, to better love one another, become more whole. And I think that's, that's just an amazing, amazing idea. And uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, we, we've, we've been all over the place. We've been Chinese alchemy, Western alchemy, astrology even here at the end of of um some ideas about that and and the collective unconscious and and um islamic mysticism it's it's all over the place and and i love it honestly <laughs> it's fascinating i hope i don't uh beat you all over the head with this book but it is it's amazing i, I can't reckon recommend it enough and um i think it it definitely helps to expand what is, is shared by people's near-death experiences, by, by Henry's near-death experience. And, and particularly, with, in Henry's case, it was very... Uh, so many ideas and so many, uh, I guess, perhaps truths about what's really going on, what, what uh, purpose and, and, and the... I don't know, how things work in, in the hereafter and, and that sort of thing. Although... You know, everyone expresses something different. It's there are places where they coincide, and and the meaning lines up, and and those are very powerful, and perhaps those give us some indication of how we can have those moments of coming together in ourselves and in our lives. So, thank you all very much for listening. Um, thank you to Henry for sharing this experience. Thank you to Carl for sharing this experience with me. Um, and again, thank you so much for listening. If you would like to reach out to me, you can do so by sending me an email at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Check out our Facebook page. We've got a bunch of, the well, all the episodes now up on YouTube, Spotify, uh, if you like the podcast, please leave a five-star review on iTunes because that really helps us out. And I have a website now. It's samreadsneardeathexperiences.com. Glad I could get that domain name. <laughs> Must have been a lot of people going for it. Um, but it, there's not a whole lot on there. But uh, if you want to check it out, you can. Um, so now we will end, as ever, with a quote on death. Okay, so because I've gone all in on reading On Dreams and Death by Marie-Louise von Franz, there was one dream that was mentioned in this book that was 
really, really impactful to me. And I really loved what it represented. Um, this is a, a dream of a uh, 75-year-old man who was in the process of dying. And, and I just loved it. And it's not really a quote on death, but um, it's a short dream. And uh, I just loved what it represents. And I think it's a very powerful image. So, I see an old gnarled tree high up on a steep bluff. It is only half-rooted in the earth, the remainder of the roots reaching into the empty air. Then it becomes separated from the earth altogether, loses its support, and falls. My heart misses a beat, but then something wonderful happens. The tree floats. It does not fall. It floats. Where to? Into the sea? I do not know.